Hello, everyone. My name is Christopher Coker. I'm director of LSE Ideas, the foreign policy think tank of the London School of Economics. And with me on the panel today is actually one of the founders of uh, that august institution, Professor Arnie Westat. Uh, his uh, co-founder, uh, Professor Michael Cox, is, is probably in the audience. Without them, this meeting, in fact, would not be, be taking place. But it also wouldn't be taking place without the generosity of our benefactor, uh, the Axel Johnson Foundation that is endowed uh, what we call the Engelsberg Chair. The first chair last year was Michael Burley, who uh, spoke about populism, the challenge, and the meaning of the term. Our speaker, uh, Arnie, uh, has been talking in two previous lectures about empires, past and present. There will be a further lecture after this in June. Now, Arnie has had a highly successful academic career, uh, which has taken him all the way from the Nobel Institute in, in Oslo to the London School of Economics and then on to Harvard and most recently Yale. As I said, this is the, the first in a series of four lectures. He will be looking at uh, high imperialism, uh, a concept associated with the late 19th century, the relationship of empires to globalizing capitalism. And finally, he will explain how the whole idea of empire and the reality destabilized the European system and led to the events of the 20th century. Arnie Cecil Rhodes, one of the great uh, British imperialists of our time, called empire philanthropy plus 5% profit. I suspect from your lecture you will tell us that, in fact, it was mostly profit with 5% philanthropy, although with the Rhodes statues falling across the world, perhaps there was no philanthropy either. But anyway, to test that proposition and look at various other aspects of capitalism and empire, uh, over to you. Thank you very much, Christopher, for that kind introduction. Um, it's wonderful to have you chair this lecture. We were colleagues for many years uh, at LSE, and I always deeply admired your scholarship. So, so that makes this an extra special occasion um, for the third lecture in this series. I also want to repeat what Professor Coker said with regard to the generosity of the benefactors. I think it is really wonderful that the LSE now has such a lecture series where we can try to go into some of the key issues that connect the past to our, to our own time. Um, that's the purpose that I tried to put forward for the series of lectures that, that I've been doing. Um, for today, for the third lecture, we are going to look at empire, uh, probably at its peak, at least in terms of uh, formal empires, uh, but also to build on what we discussed in the first two lectures, so first, about concepts of empire and how these developed over a very long period of time, uh, how many of them became permanent. Several of these concepts are with us in what I'm going to talk about today and for the final uh, lecture in, in June, but also how some of this changed over time. And for the lecture today, we're going to deal with a period of quite profound change in terms of the imperial system, which, as Christopher said, sets up at least in my mind, much of the challenges that we are facing today in terms of international uh, affairs. So let us go back and start uh, where we ended last time. And we ended last time with uh, my protagonist for the book that I'm writing about empires in the 19th century um, with Lord Elgin with James Bruce in Beijing 
which he had entered in triumph after the British and Allied victory in the Second Opium War, as we know it in the West, Second uh, War Against Imperialist Occupation, as it's known in Beijing. It was a success in many ways, and uh, Lord Elgin has reason to look rather triumphant. But it was also a massive work of destruction, and not just in a state-to-state sense. Um, the Qing, the Chinese Empire lost, and the Western imperialists won. But in my view, as I laid it out last time, these were in many ways imperial robbers on the same market. So I'm not among those who would necessarily shed too many tears about the Qing losing out. What was more problematic uh, was that it also changed the whole relationship between empire in the West, in Europe, and empire globally. So it was, in many ways, a good starting point, I think, uh, for thinking about the changes that we are going to deal with in this lecture. And there is, indeed, a set of fundamental changes from the beginning uh, of the 19th century and up to the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, in terms of how the imperial world looked in a, in a global sense. So these are the world empires around 1900. Um, and the one most important aspect, I think, in terms of change, is that while uh, the Qing in China and the Ottomans in the Middle East, slightly beyond, uh, are still in place, the imperial world has changed in composition so that these two, um, which were by all standards very important empires uh, in 1800, are now under the domination of European empires. So by 1900, imperialism was for the first time in history predominantly a European affair. And that does change a lot. Uh, that in the first period of globalization, which I'm going to discuss a little bit later on, it is European empires uh, and the European offshoots, Russia and, and the United States, that are at the top of the international imperial order. The changes that I'm going to talk about in this lecture, though, are not primarily connected to geography, though they are linked to geographical movement in various ways. The main preoccupation that I have for today's lecture is the move from empire as raw exploitation and explicit slavery over to empire as reform and improvement and control. And much of that happened in the middle part and the latter part of the, of the 19th century. And as I said uh, in my last lecture, the consequences of this were at least as deadly for many imperial subjects in many parts of the world. So do not necessarily think of this as humanitarianism, at least not in a simple fashion. But much of the motivation changed, and I think it genuinely changed, which is part of the challenge um, from conquest uh, over onto expansion uh, for the sake of civilization, rather than for, for immediate Gain. So the ideological aspects of expansion become much more important in the um, 20th century than what was the case uh, before. So part of the reason why this could happen uh, is, of course, connected to the technological and military strength 
of the European empires and their offshoots. Uh, Lord Elgin uh, arrived uh, in Jamaica, his first posting as governor, uh, on a ship, it was actually the sister ship to the one that we are, we are seeing here. This is the Amazon. Um, he was on the Medina, which then unfortunately proceeded to sink off the coast of the Turks and Caicos Islands. The ship itself, um, uh, an imperial steam package ship, is quite an interesting construction. It's a sailing ship, but it's also a steamship. And even more, it's a paddle steamship that traveled cross-Atlantic uh, to Latin America, North America, and the Caribbean, primarily in order to carry mail from Britain overseas. And I, I don't think there is any image that is better suited for the kind of purposes that we are looking at today, this explosion in technological change that contributed increasingly to making the world one. So in terms of these changes, the, the, the technological, military, ideological changes, it's also very important, I think, to say a word to begin with, and I'll return to it uh, in a little way later on, about concepts of race and racism. So I think it became increasingly important in this time period, towards the end of the 19th century, uh, in Europe, but also in the European offshoots, to create myths about why Europeans were superior. And this is not saying that racism had been unimportant in earlier imperial history, as I explained in the first lecture, um, uh, only that it's different now, and the concepts are different. Uh, nor are we saying, of course, that Europeans were or are the only ones who could be racist. Uh, you have had a number of racist civilizations that have come out of history that were not developed within Europe. But what I am saying is that for this time, time period, forms of European race thinking are particularly important for how Europeans wanted to organize the world. Now, in terms of the changes that were going on at this point, towards the end of the 19th century, it seems to me that they were driven primarily by three forms of transformation. They were driven by economic change, which I'm going to talk about first. They were driven by politics at the imperial center, which changed very dramatically, not least in an ideological form during this time period. And they were driven by anti-colonial resistance. So all three of these to me are quite important in order to make sure that we understand, understand this transformation, understand this particular moment in time. It's not enough, as many analysts, many historians, many social scientists have tried to do, to focus on one of them. We have to have a much more complete image of the transformation in order to understand what happened. And let me start then with uh, economic change. So late 19th century economics led to expansion of empire, but also conflicts between um, the very rapid development of the economy itself and the practices of imperial states. There is always a tension between these. There is a tension, if you'd like, between capitalism and imperialism. As I will show in a moment, the two were also completely capable of existing together. I believe that that tension is important to understand maybe especially for those of us like myself uh, 
who believe that it's entirely wrong to speak of capitalism and imperialism as if they were by themselves contradictions. Um, those who argue that mainly argue that capitalism, especially in its free trade form as practiced by uh, Great Britain since the, since the 1840s, undermines the raison d'etre for, for empires. And for the 19th century, I would argue that's almost completely untrue. Capitalism and imperialism went well together in spite of the tensions between them, at least up to the point when the value of manufactured goods so outpaced the price of raw material that former colonies could be seen as financially redundant. And this happens very late in the game, as we will discuss um, in the last part of the lecture. Now, this does not mean that the ideological emphasis on free trade is less significant in terms of how much of imperial domination was carried out. The imperialism of free trade, as Gallagher and Robinson uh, pointed out now almost 70 years ago, was a very important aspect of how the British Empire especially, but also increasingly other European uh, empires spread towards the end of the century. Britain, as I already said, in reality, practiced free trade from 1846 with the repeal of the Corn Laws. And it's for very good reasons. It's, it's very easy, as we know from history in general, when you are the top dog in, in economic terms, to move towards practicing free trade. It's much harder for those who do not have the same level of economic development to accept it. And that was indeed the challenge, I think, uh, especially for Britain during the 19th century and meant that free trade stayed uh, more ideology than a specific economic system almost throughout the, throughout the century. Uh, and in some places, as in China, as we have already seen, a free trade system could only be achieved through the use of military force or the threat of military force. Uh, another sense of how imperialism and capitalism actually went together. So... The central part, I think, of understanding uh, economic change in the late 19th, very early 20th century up to the First World War is how quick this transformation was, um, how capitalism took off in terms of economic growth in these parts of Europe and parts of the European orchards. Uh, demand in Europe soared. Uh, for manufacturing input, think about cotton that we talked quite a bit about last time, uh, for fuel, think first and foremost coal, but also increasingly towards the end of the century, uh, different kinds of petroleum-based products, and of course for food, um, because the, uh, where the, the area where you really saw a, a population explosion uh, during the 19th century was in Europe, uh, and there was a need for imported food uh, including imported food from outside of Europe, to feed the rapidly increasing uh, European population. So in the minds, I think, both of businessmen and of political leaders, the demands of this rapidly growing economy led to the conclusion that control of resources was essential for expansion. Um, some people would argue, and it's an interesting discussion that we can come back to later, 
that this was driven more by ideology than by economic necessity. Because in reality, what you found was that as the European economy uh, continued to grow, much of what was needed for its further expansion was actually found within Europe and the offshoots themselves, rather than further afield. But as we saw in the last lecture, ideologies, particularly when it comes to empire, can very quickly be translated over to, over to economic practice. And the idea that uh, certain measures are driven by economic necessity. And it certainly drove late 19th century imperial expansion. There was a need, it was argued, to remove obstacles for trade and investment abroad, and that some of that removal, as we've seen in the case of China, could be best reduced through the use of military force and military pressure. But there was, of course, also the search for prestige and for position, what you could call a late 19th century FOMO fear of missing out, that if you didn't act quickly enough, then other countries would overtake you, um, would spread more quickly than you, uh, would dominate the world in ways that you could not. And of course, that was a significant part of what drove uh, imperial expansion in the late 19th century. There was also the issue of migration, but in a very different direction from what we got used to during the latter part um, of the uh, 20th century. Um, the idea that um, outward migration from Europe would relieve some of the population pressures, the demographic, demographic pressures, often at, often at the time referred to as overpopulation uh, within uh, Europe itself. So sending people out, especially from Britain, um, to newly settled colonies was a very important part uh, of this. Uh, the idea of the spread of civilization, civilization was, as you see in this image, uh, supported both by the army, by working men that are behind it, against foreign, mostly dark-skinned barbarians, I think became an increasingly important part of the idea that became, towards the end of the century, known as colonialism. I even see the first um, good table that I ever found of how migration developed over a long period of time up to our own day and age. And it follows a pattern that will stay with us, I think, for this lecture, a first wave of globalization, of capitalist globalization, towards the end of the 19th century, peaking in the years before the First World War, and then a very, very rapid uh, decline up to the Second World War, and a slow resurrection of the migration patterns later. So uh, the point I'm making here is that the number of Europeans who actually migrated towards the end of the 19th century was very, very significant. It wasn't just Europeans. Uh, other people, especially in Asia, migrated too. But it was centered on European migration. And that became a very important part of the new form of empire um, around, around 1900. But it wasn't just people who migrated. Um, financial capital started to migrate too, in ways much above what the world had ever seen before or would see again for quite some time. 
And here we have, I think, a pretty good chart, if you can see it, of how this developed in terms of modern history. So you have a high level of capital mobility, meaning foreign investment, uh, raising during the time of the gold standard in the late uh, 19th century, up to 1914, and then a very dramatic collapse. Uh, and it really took up to the 1990s before capital mobility came back to the levels that it had immediately before uh, the First World War. So in 1913, about 9% of the total world output went into some kind of foreign direct investment. Um, and it would take a very long time before that level would be achieved again. Now, one of the challenges in looking at these figures, uh, and I do think this is important because it changes our view of what actually happened, is to look at where these uh, capital exports actually went. The fact is that not so much of it went to the colonies, much more of it went to other capitalist economies. Uh, particularly rapidly developing um, capitalist economies. And this is, of course, the problem with Lenin's thesis about imperialism, that colonies were acquired, Lenin says, as an outlet for surplus capital accumulated in the leading industrial countries in the late 19th century. Um, in reality, um, this does not hold up. Uh, although Lenin's thesis of course, created its own political reality, uh, allying, as it were, anti-colonialism uh, in, in, in the colonized world with radical socialism in the, in the developed countries. And in that sense, you can see its political purposes. The Marxist who actually got this right, by the way, was Hilferding, um, who in 1910 wrote a book that explains this better than most of the things that I know, called Finanzkapital, in which... Uh, he argues that it's a contradiction between imperial states' need for control and the expansion of financial capitalism, which has no interest whatsoever, of course, in imperial position, the, uh, possessions, the way Hilferding sees it, that drives much of the political development in the late 19th century. Um, I think Hilferding has, is considerably more right on this than what Lenin was in ways that we will see uh, later later on. Um, here you can get an overview of where some of this uh, foreign investment went for one year, 1913 to 1914. You see it, Asia and Africa, while not unimportant in any sense, um, are far behind what went to uh, especially the, the New World, so especially Latin America and North America and, and Australasia. The role of international banks is also a very important aspect of this transformation. This is, in a way, a time where international banks on a global scale were created, not least because they were capable at this point, because of the information they received, to decide on lending patterns and how this would actually be carried out. And very often, as we know with regard to Asia and Africa, this was politics in disguise. Uh, it was governments who lent on the banks in order to make decisions uh, within what made financial reason uh, that the governments actually wanted to see. So this mix uh, of politics 
and finance to the banks also became increasingly important in the period up to um, 1914. Now, globalization in terms of goods also went in the opposite direction. It wasn't just raw material coming in to Europe and North America and Russia. It was also increasingly that these parts of the world would flood Asia, Africa, and Latin America with goods, manufactured goods, that had been produced in the more advanced capitalist countries. Uh, and this, of course, uh, provided opportunities uh, in commercial terms for many people, and not just people of European extraction, um, in, in the colonial world. But it also contributed to what was, at least over time, quite an unhealthy pattern in terms of where advanced goods were produced. Uh, putting at least parts of the domestic economic development in the colonial world at the back foot because of the strength and availability of imports from Europe. Uh, very similar, of course, to what some Europeans and North Americans are saying today about Asian imports and particularly, particularly Chinese uh, imported goods. This brings us to one of the big questions, which we can discuss further in, in the Q&A session, about whether imperialism as such hobbled economic development in the, in the colonized world. And there are two sort of classical positions on this. Um, one by Karl Marx, who basically says no, um, that uh, capitalism is a step forward for the colonized world, that it, it creates new opportunities uh, new parts of development. And then in the 20th century, dependency theorists and to some extent modernization theorists as well, who say, yes, this was a, a way of keeping all kinds of domestic uh, production down. Uh, it, it, sometimes in ways, as we have seen in this lecture, uh, that could be pretty violent in terms of the insistence of prioritizing European goods and European capital. Now, it seems to me that the real violence uh, towards the colonized world in these terms may not be in reduced output as much as cutting off alternative avenues of development, uh, different kinds of economic systems, including different kinds of capitalism that could have been developed uh, if it weren't for the fact that the imperial centers insisted with a great deal of success that capitalism in its European form should be replicated everywhere else, even in areas where it obviously did not fit the overall framework of development. That might indeed be where the real imperial violence in economic terms actually rests. Let us turn then to political change. And um, this is, of course, significant in, in terms of the transformation of how uh, countries thought about empire and thought about imperialism. Um, some of it was caused uh, by economic change, and some of it was caused by changes that went on in, in different sectors of human existence and human, human experience. One of the most important ones uh, in the mid-19th century was the idea of reform, which very much started at home and very much started in, in Great Britain. Uh, with part of the idea being that one wanted to save the imperial state by expanding the number of people who had a stake in it. 
to the expansion of democratic processes and the expansion of economic opportunity. Of course, uh, this has an echo in ideological terms that goes back to the French and American revolutions. Um, that uh, with the kind of imperial crisis that took place in the mid 19th century, which we talked about in the last lecture, uh, the right to taxation and the right to mobilization, to actually mobilize forces uh, from the European countries to be used as protection either against other imperial states, uh, most often, or, or in, in keeping the empire intact, that right to taxation and mobilization could be argued for much better if a larger number of people actually had a stake in the political processes um, of the imperial centers themselves. But it wasn't just about saving the imperial state through expanding participation. It was also about other impulses. Some of them, as we touched upon last time, connected to ideas of religious fervor and about anti-slavery which in both cases led to reform ideas um, in the colonies. The idea that practices that were carried out by colonized peoples themselves, and here is a very set picture that was replicated over and over again in Britain in the mid 19th century of, of Indian Sati traditions, that it was necessary to break with superstition and violence that came out of uh, indigenous colonial peoples themselves in order to move towards the kind of reform uh, that was necessary. Um, and that reform impulse, I think, is something that is deeply uh, central to the whole idea of how empires developed in the late 19th century. And it sort of links reform at home to ideas of reform abroad, often, as in this case, to a very crude and sometimes incorrect presentation of the practices that were actually going on in colonized areas. But in addition to this part of the reform impulse, there is also the whole set of ideas about administrative reform and about centers of education developed uh, within the main empires to train people for actually administering the colonies which grew, of course, in size towards the end of the 19th century and became much larger territorial empires um, than what they had been before. Now, some of you might recognize what this is. Uh, this is from one of those institutions that were set up to uh, train uh, people who could help with administer the empire. This is the London School of Economics. This is a lunchtime dance in the mid 1920s, in what I believe is now the Shaw Library, though I'm not entirely certain about that. Um, so these kinds of institutions of training for imperial purposes are very important, very, very significant, uh, not just in, in Britain, but, but in France and eventually in Germany and Italy and in the United States and in Russia um, as well. Now, with the idea of better trained European administrators, also came the concept of removing different forms of indigenous authority that had stayed in place. So all the way up to the late 19th century, especially for the British Empire, the idea of leaving well enough alone 
the idea of relying on indigenous authority where it was possible to work with it had been very strong. In the mid-19th century, particularly up towards the end of the century, this changed to what you could call this war on superstition and on local traditions. Um, you wanted more education of a European standard. You wanted more of an emphasis on communications, the building of railway networks and, and ports. And you wanted to stimulate economic activity in the colonies, not necessarily, and this I do think is important, because it served the purposes of capitalism expanding from the imperial centers. There was an element of that, but it was not the only thing. There was also the idea that capitalism, in ways that the imperial state saw as quite wonderful, civilized and elevated indigenous people into forms of practice that was much more understandable and therefore acceptable uh, from a European perspective. And this, of course, had tremendous long-term consequences in terms of how the world developed in the, in the 20th century. Indeed, this idea of measuring and counting what was going on in the empire, and the LSE was one of those institutions that really played a role here, sort of making imperial possessions more legible, uh, from an imperial point of view, became really, really important in terms of the development of this new form of imperialism in the late 19th century. More important, I think, than many people recognize until the collapse of the empires themselves pretty late in, in the 20th century. There was also the development, the further development of military innovation uh, in Europe which made European states much more superior in military terms to the colonized areas than what had been the case at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, it was also uh, therefore possible to find areas on a global scale where the incremental cost of territorial expansion was actually quite low after the 1860s because of this uh, development of Western military technology, Africa, um, maybe it's first and foremost, but also Southeast Asia. The division between what was able to be mobilized locally and what the Europeans could bring in was much, much greater than what it had been in earlier, earlier, earlier generations. Now, you may wonder in terms of this sense of developmentally driven ideas of reform, where does the racial imagery, the development of new forms of racism actually come into it? So I think this happens very sharply from the 1860s and 1870s onwards, uh, very much connected to ideas of racial superiority uh, among Europeans, but also connected to the idea of the development of a responsibility by Europeans, as with Kipling's white man's burden, for the world at large. There was also in it, I think, a continuous um, development of religious impulses in the sense that uh, Europeans were predestined not just to take over the world, but also to make the world a better place. And if that meant that others would uh, continuously be put in a second place or even further down the ranking, then that was the way God had intended it. 
It raises in this form, provided the justification for continued rule at the time when these concepts of rule became more and more challenged, as we will see in a, in a minute. Um, and this is where the contradiction, I think, comes in, in terms of what is happening in the very late 19th century, uh, in terms of political and ideological change. So by emphasizing democracy at home and reform abroad, in spite of concepts of race, uh, concepts of economic development, concepts of advanced financial capitalism, there was still this basic contradiction uh, to uh, what you could say was the, the, the fundamental idea of foreign rule. Um, democracy at home and reform abroad in many ways helped erode the ideological legitimacy of empire in total. If Europeans could only be ruled by consent, why was not the same true, at least over time, for the colonies? And it was very hard to make up for that discrepancy, even through the most uh, perfidious forms of, of racial thinking. Um, I think from the late 19th century, imperial legitimacy in this sense was already in decline. Someone who caught this quite well was the French um, essayist uh, Julien Banda, uh, who wrote a famous essay in 1927 called uh, La Trahison de Claire, or the, I think it's translated into English as the treason of the intellectuals. What Banda said in, in this very polemical essay was that European intellectuals in the 19th and very early 20th century, prior to the First World War, had often lost the ability to reason dispassionately about military matters or about political matters, instead becoming apologists for crass nationalism or warmongering and racism. Now, Benda's main preoccupation was that this led to the First World War, which indeed it did. But some of the same could be said uh, from uh, a colonial perspective or from an empire's perspective. The idea being that imperialism as a European civilizational project had in a way been betrayed from the inside as Europe itself increasingly went tribal. Um, now, these are the concerns, in my view, that paved the way for new forms of control in the 20th century. Um, not rights by conquest, but rights by developing modernity, which claims to represent progress and democracy and justice on a global scale. And this is, of course, what you got in the Cold War and what you got in the ideological reinvention of the United States and the Soviet Union in the 20th century, which we will talk about in the next lecture. Let me then turn briefly to the final part of this lecture, um, dealing with anti-colonial resistance, because it is pretty clear that part of the reason why empires started getting into trouble in the early 20th century, and trouble that had increased in the middle part of that century, had to do with resistance within the colonial areas themselves. But what this has a much earlier history. Um, some would say from the very beginning of the colonial enterprise, there had been resistance. I would agree with that. But beginning from what I like to call the Indian Revolution of the 1850s, often known as the Great Mutiny, 
it's pretty clear that the ability of colonized people to various forms, in spite of the military discrepancy between the two, to uh, start to oppose Western, the Western present, Western colonialism, had grown quite significantly. There was simply much more resistance in the late 19th century and much more armed conflict, even though the outcome of that armed co conflict was very often in the favor of Europeans, for reasons that I've described, than what had been the case at any earlier point in terms of European colonial development. So this is the opposite side uh, in terms of the military technological development. The superiority of the Europeans in terms of military technology had certainly increased, but it also became easier to get hold of or even produce weapons outside of imperial stamper. Uh, in spite of this, though, most of the anti-colonial resistance in the late 19th century was in the form of anti-colonial or nationalist organizations, um, which we'll talk more about in a, in a second. Other starting points, which should not be forgotten in the 19th century for this form of anti-colonial resistance, was the Haitian Revolution in 1804, setting up the first uh, African-led or Black-led uh, republic in the New World. Uh, and perhaps most significant, Latin American independence, uh, which is often not taken into consideration when it comes to decolonization, but to me it seems to be in many ways the starting point for much of what we got to see in the 20th century. Um, in terms of resistance, it's also well worth noting that even though the Qing, the Chinese Empire, and the Ottomans had their role reduced, both of them still survived the 19th century, as we saw on the map that I showed um, earlier on, uh, and still had some kind of position uh, in order to be able, at least within their own borders, to query, if not always resist, European colonialism of various sorts. But the most important change, I think, was with regard to new types of organizations that emerged among the, colon the colonized um, peoples, uh, especially of Africa and Asia. Uh, they came in different forms. Uh, some of them were primarily anti-colonial, opposing the colonial system more than anything else. Um, the Indian um, Congress Party, for instance, set up in 1885, um, interestingly enough, by a mix of people of European and Indian origin. The ANC in South Africa, set up in, in 1912, or the Etoile North Africain in, in Algeria um, in 1927, I believe it was. So for all of these people, uh, their politics were rights-oriented. Um, they were... Uh, interested in dealing with issues such as the flow of population coming in from Europe to dominate other areas and to take them over. This is uh, a call by Australians for uh, more white immigrants to Australia, complaining that far too many Europeans end up in, in North and, and South America, while they really should come to Australia to take that uh, continent into, into possession. So rights were more important here than anything else from the side of these anti-colonial organizations. Not all of them even query the existence of the empires themselves, at least in their essence. But they did want to be recognized, whatever the color of the skin or the own background or the, their own religion, 
as full members of the empire that had been imposed on them. But that was an absolute minimum in terms of what could be expected for global um, colonial subjects to translate them over onto citizens. Of course, for many of these organizations gradually, and especially after the First World War, which we're going to talk about next time, uh, this anti-colonial rights-based set of issues was transformed into much stronger demands, um, first for autonomy and then increasingly for independence. But that was still in the future, in the early 20th century. The other kind of, of organizations that came out of colonized peoples was what you could call nativist or sometimes religious, uh, orienting themselves first and foremost to resurrect lost institutions and lost solidarities that had been destroyed by European colonialism. Uh, they were more preoccupied with racial or ethnic oppression in itself than rights within a bigger framework of uh, political theory. Much of that political theory, of course, had been borrowed from Europe in the first place. Uh, the point here is that these different forms of uh, colonial organizations among indigenous people, increasingly by people who migrated within uh, empires as well, uh, that they worked reasonably well together, at least up to the point in the mid-20th century when politics and ideology started breaking uh, many of them apart. The battle, of course, was between different definitions of nation and nationalism. What did that mean in a context of anti-colonialism and increasingly in the mid-20th century of decolonization? Was there anything given about what a nation consisted of? Was it possible to think of nations within an empire? Yeah, a whole set of issues that go back to the definitions and concepts that we discussed in, in my first uh, lecture for this series. And that was an ongoing discussion um, and debate. And much of this, both in terms of the anti-imperialist thinking, but also in terms of organizational practices and knowledge, came to a head uh, for organizations. This is like, this is from the, um, one of the first meetings of the ANC in South Africa. Came to a head during the First World War uh, with a number of groups, people from outside of Europe that actually served in Europe, but also seeing from the perspective of people in the colonized world, the collective suicide that European empires were willing to engage in at home which drastically removed what was left by that point of the idea of Europeans as ruling through some claim of superiority. Um, here we have uh, Indian Sikh troops uh, serving in France in 1915. The effects of the First World War in enabling and to some extent hypercharging uh, these debates about the future of empire, I think is a breaking point that must be with us when we think about this period. What I'm arguing is that many of the ideas uh, that were there, many of the ideas that were discussed during and immediately after the First World War had been born during this transformation of imperial practices that took place in the late 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. That's often what happens. Uh, in history. Uh, ideas are there, concepts are there, and then it's up to people 
under the impact of a very dramatic change, like the first World War certainly was, to make sense of them under new circumstances. I think that's very much what happened in terms of the transformation of empire in the in the 20th century. Uh, of course, leading eventually to the Cold War as a reaction against the expansion of sovereignty that many of the people, like the ones we saw from the ANC a minute ago, would actually stand for. Claiming sovereignty in a world that opera empire was beginning to become increasingly predominated by by great powers, by the United States and, and the Soviet Union. So this is what I will deal with next time, how we got from this transformation of empire in the late 19th century and early 20th century over onto a world run by superpowers. And then after the late 20th century, how a new world gradually started coming into being based to a great extent on the experience of imperial transformations. That's what I had to say for today, and I'm really looking forward to the questions and comments that you might have. Thank you very much, Arnie. I found that photograph quite telling, of if it was in fact taken in the Shaw Library. They don't look like students, do they? Um, they seem to, I think we would be both considered rather underdressed today and probably not allowed in uh, where we'd turn up with the ticket. But anyway, thank you very much for that uh, wonderful talk. Um, I've got a lot of questions. There are also a lot of questions banking up. I'm glad you mentioned Jack Gallagher. He taught me my imperial history back in the 1970s. His book, I still, uh, I think, is still held in some regard by historians. So I would like you to touch on this concept of formal and informal empire, which, which he developed, uh, which you didn't touch upon in your lecture, the informal empire being the British and Latin America in particular, and how that was sold off to pay for the First World War and how the Americans perhaps uh, took over. Uh, if you could say something about that, but can we start with the uh, picture you first showed of the Second Opium War? Because um, there was a debate in the House of Commons, uh, a motion of no confidence against the government that took Britain to war, tab tabled by the Conservative opposition, Lord Derby, I think, uh, on the grounds that it was outrageous for a country to go to war for a principle like free trade, that one should only go to war for a national interest, or perhaps something like the balance of power or whatever, but not for principles, not for civilizing missions. And I, and I think part of the liberal argument was that if you open China to free trade, you would open up Chinese minds. And if you opened up Chinese minds to Western ideas, you'd get what we will today call an open society. Uh, and that's a theme which runs right through liberal internationalism. So my question is, is liberal internationalism just the rebirth of imperialism uh, with an American accent, perhaps, after the 40s or 50s? So those are the first two questions, and then we'll go on to, to the others that have already appeared on the screen. Wonderful, Christopher. Thank you for those. They are both quite central in two slightly different ways to, to what I had to say today, of course. In terms of informal empire, I think... The key to understanding it, as you indicated yourself, is very much as existing within an imperial framework that had, had already been, been set up, but where there were uh, economically driven aspects of Britain's expansion, and eventually also the expansion of, of, of other countries, uh, that did not depend on actual colonization of any, in any meaningful form. And possibly it could be argued, though uh, Gallagher and Robinson do not argue this themselves, 
that this could lead to a fundamental rethinking of imperial structures, how empire was actually carried out. Now, I think the, the key here, and this actually connects the two questions in a way, is that there was a constant tension in Britain especially, but also elsewhere, throughout the late 19th century about what form of uh, export of capital, if you put it that way, that would serve the country the best. I mean, would it be simply through uh, the form of an empire uh, in which everything was created by Britain and then sent out to a formal structure that in one way or another could be defined as the British Empire, constantly redefined in that sense? Or was it simply through saying that Britain's interests followed wherever British capital went? And as I showed in the lecture, that was increasingly not to the colonies. That was to, for instance, Latin America, but also, also elsewhere in, in Europe and, and, and North America. I think that was always, in an uh, official sense, and a political sense in Britain, a minority view. Um, the idea that formal empire really mattered was very strong from the mid-19th century until the end of the century. But certainly, if you want to explain what drove many of Britain's engagements overseas, you cannot overlook uh, informal empire, because when you think about Britain's own long-term development at a critical stage, it was perhaps as important as what the formal empire itself was, as indeed Gallagher and Robinson do on. Now, in terms of expansion into China in the 1850s, was also, well, 1860s, was also really difficult, I think, both in ideological terms, as it indeed was for, for James Bruce, um, but also difficult in terms of British politics. Um, now, I'm still trying to make up my own mind uh, as to how much of the impulse for saying we should really not be doing this uh, is an anti-imperial instinct or anti-imperial idea, and how much of it is simply about preserving resources and not for Britain to do the work that other countries should do for themselves if they wanted to expand commercially into China? In other words, very similar to some of the questions asked for the United States today, was this about Britain acting systemically, upholding standards of civilization, um, setting in motion a, a global economic system that Britain was at the center of, uh, or was it simply about Britain's own much narrower self-interest? So if you were looking at the last election campaign in this country, in the United States, I think much of the debate that you had in Parliament in the 1850s was replicated there. Maybe this is one of the predicaments of becoming a predominant international power. Um, are you there for the system or are you there for yourself? Very good. So um, let's let's move on to some of the questions. Um, you've touched. You've used the word colonialism just now, and one of the questions from Juan Costain, who's an alumnus, is that colonization uh, is this a national undertaking or an elite enterprise? But could you say something in answer to that question about the difference between colonization and imperialism? Because I think the two are often frequently confused in in people's minds. And then, of course, the actual question uh, is: Is empire really? a national undertaking, or is it just a group of free traders and, and politicians who, who get together and, and push in that direction? 
It's another very good question. And, and there is, as you rightly note, Christopher, there is a lot of confusion between these concepts. So I try to use them. I don't always succeed, but I try to use them in the form that they were actually used back in the 19th century, where empire is about state expansion and colonialism is primarily, though not always exclusively, about settlement. So uh, for the first, uh, I think that was definitely a state and elite enterprise. Um, Britain had, as you referred to Christopher with regard to China, and even more so, uh, though it didn't lead to the resignation of any government, the debate about expansion into Africa in the, in the late 19th century, there was always a great deal of discussion about this, um, but it was always kept at the level of raison d'etat. It was always kept at the level of what the state had to do. Colonialism in that sense is different. Um, as I said in the lecture, it is primarily uh, from an elite perspective about avoiding demographic pressures within the imperial center, um, not just for people you wanted to get rid of, which was the case in Britain, of course, in the 18th and very early 19th century, convicts, etc., and, and, uh, and Irish revolutionaries and, and others, but increasingly for significant segments of the working class, um, and to some extent into the landed classes, uh, whether it would be better to export some of these people overseas in order either to work as, as workers or, or, or workers in agriculture, or indeed to set up their own farms, uh, set up their own enterprises and, and, and plantations in order to avoid the kind of economic pressure that rapid economic growth would lead to at home. And there is an element in this, and it comes on very quickly, I think, in the late 19th century, of settler interests becoming mixed up, not just with settlement policies, but also going back to the issue of imperial expansion. Um, the best example we have of this is, of course, not from Britain. Uh, it's about the expansion of the United States in North America, where the more land you grab for an increasing population, the more land you would want at some point in the future. Uh, but you saw some elements of this in South Africa. You certainly saw it uh, in Australia and, and, and Canada. You saw it in parts of, of um, the empire in, in, in Africa as well, um, that there had to be a need for making political decisions that to some extent answered to uh, the demands of European or British settlers abroad. And of course, as we know, when it then came within two generations to decolonization, this became a major issue. Um, it's easy to go through a decolonization process in a country when you are under great political pressure in that country and the, the majority of public opinion at home do not care very much about this. It's much harder to do it when uh, your own people have settled abroad and in order to carry out some form of decolonization, you have in a very direct way to go against the interests of those who have taken up the message of settling. So, uh, you know, from the Boer War all the way up to the 1950s and 60s, you saw that tension in terms of British and French, especially uh, colonial policy. And I just proceed this a little bit further. It <laughs> Would it be true to say that nation states, the big nation states, uh, 
in, by the 1870s and 80s felt that you had to have an empire to be a genuine nation, European nation state, um, just as you had to have a language, you have to have an ethnicity and various other things that were beginning to be considered. And where does that put politicians like Bismarck and Salisbury, who were very sceptical about empire making? In fact, many British politicians were sceptical about uh, empire making uh, for, very, for very good reasons, entangling uh, circumstances, etc. Um, there seems to have been a kind of hysteria at the end of the 19th century in Europe about just land grabbing. I think Salisbury famously said they'd, they'd get us to occupy the moon if we could actually get there. Um, but did that hysteria continue until 1914? Was empire actually one of the causes of the First World War? When I was taught that, that was the case in the 1970s, but I think historians are very sceptical about that now, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is more of a skepticism. I think imperial expansion certainly contributed to the rise of tension in Europe, but alongside a number of other issues. The idea that it was imperial expansion in and by itself that led to war uh, is, of course, entirely correct. But it contributed, and perhaps generationally, it contributed at a particularly important time, setting the agenda in terms of nationalism, hyper-nationalism, for many of those who were moving into positions of control and command in 1914, um, you know, by 1914 would have come a very long way from Bismarck, at least Bismarck before the, the uh, early 1880s, who, when people uh, within his earshot spoke too highly about uh, German interests in Africa, used to pull them by their ear into his office, roll out a map of Europe, say, this is France, this is Russia, this is us, this is my map of Africa. You know, you wouldn't have gotten that when you get into the late 80s and 1890s with all the jingoism that you had going back to the first part of your question saying, we have to have an empire because it's what makes us a complete state. Um, any state worth its salt would have to be imperial. But there was always opposition to that. So... Uh, one of the things that I'm really preoccupied in terms of my writing on this is to locate some of those nodes of resistance, not just in the world uh, of colonies, but also at home. Uh, it's simply not true uh, that it was a given, even on matters such as race, that it was a given uh, that European countries should uh, engage in a never-ending form of imperial expansion. Uh, in fact, especially in Britain in the 1870s and 1880s, you had some of the most notable racists saying that's exactly what we shouldn't do. We should try to free ourselves as much as possible for any involvement with people who are racially inferior. So the idea that this all goes together in a neat package that then explains war uh, through expansion and expansion through war, I think is simply not true. Well, here's a question by Hattie Simpson. Um, since we've been talking about racism, she raises the question of sexism and the importance of women in the making of empire. You show that picture of civilization as a woman, uh, but then nation states were frequently shown as, as women as well. But what do you think was the role, if there was one, of sexism in this period that you're looking at? So I spoke um, about this uh, to some length in the last lecture, so I didn't revisit some of the same issues. So I'll actually come back to it in a slightly different form in the in the final lecture. So I think concepts of gender uh, played a very significant role with regard to particularly the transformation 
from the first kind of imperialism that I was talking about in the early 19th century over onto at least the beginning of the reform uh, era. Um, women's participation in anti-slavery campaigns, of course, were very, very significant. But they also uh, were very significant in terms of imperial expansion abroad towards the end of the 19th century, uh, where you had quite a number of the colonizing enterprises being driven both by men and women. So before then, the idea was that white men would go out and colonize, while white women dutifully stayed at home and enjoyed the, the fruits of empire if they were able to do that. Uh, but that started changing. I mean, when the idea really became permanent, permanent settlement in, in many areas. So uh, women, uh, you know, black and brown women, white women in colonized areas, then relatively quickly started to discover that they actually did have things in common. Uh, they didn't create uh, institutions or, or organizations. The gap between them were, were too great for that. But the idea that you saw then replicated uh, through the writing of women of whatever background in the anti-colonial and independence organizations in the early and mid 20th century is actually quite striking. And, and the link becomes, just to foreshadow what I have to say next time, became particularly strong um, with the rise of feminism in the 20th century. So the idea, uh, one of the ideas uh, within feminist thinking um, being that women were oppressed within the colonial centers in the same way uh, as uh, indigenous peoples were oppressed in the colonies, that you actually had something in common. So it took a long way, you know, from the, the reform impulses, the anti-slavery impulses to arrive at that in the 20th century. But I do think that that's a part that should not be forgotten because the gendered sense of um, control that came out of the early colonizing moments, I think is so important that it in many ways had to create some kind of, of reaction. Um, it's just that it took a long time for that to happen. Two, two questions which really bring us into the present. Um, one uh, from Adrian Lees, the development of colonialism, did it act as an analyst of cultural imperialism? Uh, cultural when would you date cultural imperialism? Would you say that it's a kind of form of neo-colonialism or neo-imperialism? In other words, it post-states? Or do you think it's there right at the very beginning of the process you're discussing? So cultural imperialism is a really difficult concept to use because we rarely find, in my view, maybe I'm too materialist for the sake of some people here, um, you really find cultural imperialism without it being based in some form or another on more uh, hands-on forms of imperialism, meaning imperial control in administrative terms, uh, military expansion you know, in, in, in other terms. Um, there were many more attempts, to put this very bluntly, uh, at forcing forms of culture on other people through military means or repressive means than just through cultural expansion in and by itself. That said, it's also very clear that, especially in the mid-19th century, you had a whole set of ideas that originated in Europe that spread uh, to the colonized world, spread throughout empires, that were then taken on board and turned around and made use of by those who wanted to engage in anti-imperialist uh, practices of various sort. 
uh, issues of, of democracy and representation that I talked about early on in the lecture, um, ideas um, about autonomous working class organizations, for instance. Uh, indeed, Marxism, very much a European phenomenon, uh, of course spread um, in the colonial world very much uh, in order to be used against the, the empires themselves. So it is a mix, this. I'm, one of the great things about culture is that very often it develops in ways, not just formal culture, but culture in a broad sense, develops in ways that are entirely unintended. That ideas and uh, presuppositions, concepts, take on lives of their own uh, in ways that are entirely beyond the comprehension of people who originated them. Uh, I do think that when we look at cultural imperialism, which, by the way, I, I completely accept exists as an overall phenomenon in terms of trying to establish a predominant culture over others, it is quite interesting to see, particularly looking forward from the 19th century, how many European ideas were weaponized to be used against the existence of formal European empires in the, in the 20th century. Two questions on, 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 on economics. Um, one question really on the kind of north-south divide, the inequalities that persist to this day still between north and south. To what extent is that a product of, of 19th century? imperialism? So I think it's very much based on the way imperialism developed in the 19th century, but obviously in forms that are taken on a particular significance in the 20th century. So the way I often explain this to students is that it's hard to say that there is a direct line between, you know, the specific form that imperialism, colonial control and oppression had in the 19th century and the conflicts in terms of uh, sovereignty and development uh, that we see today. But in terms of location, in terms of the areas in which these conflicts are being played out, of course, there is an overlap. So historically, the links are there. They are just not as direct in many ways, uh, because so much history has uh, happened in between, uh, as we sometimes tend to, tend to foresee. So if you look at this in the really big picture, if the uh, world of the North, the global North, as some people like to call it, um, wealthy, wealthier than the global South because of imperialism, my answer to that is definitely yes. As I said in the last lecture, it played a role. We can argue about how decisive that role was, but it played a very significant role, as did slavery, uh, in creating uh, a very unequal divide in terms of how the world works. Uh, that has lasted up to today. But if you look at the specific developments of specific areas, you have to be much more precise than that, where the forms of colonialism actually mattered, who you were colonized by, the kind of uh, indigenous resistance that developed and how that was channeled played a very, very important role with regard to this. And maybe first and foremost, the experience that many countries went through in the period immediately before and immediately after independence also played a very, very important role in this. So, you know, uh, how you were able to deal with the hand that you were dealt at the, in the era of the breakdown 
of the empires also play a role for what our world looks like today. So having a sort of undifferentiated view of this, I don't think is, is good history. But even so, starting from the point of development, saying that these developments uh, advantaged uh, certain regions of the world and disadvantaged others, I, I think is completely fair. Here's a question on sustainability. The Western focus of sustainability is a form of neo-imperialism. And I'd like to go back here to a debate which is now raging about famines in the 19th century, uh, like the Bengal famine, for example, and the extent to which imperialists facilitated the famines by their uh, free trade doctrines, for example, by their emphasis that the market would always uh, ultimately supply food or that if you continued to help people, then you're going to make them dependent uh, forever uh, on state support. Those kind of ideas, which I suppose have, in a sense, continued into what we used to be called the Washington Consensus in the 1980s and 90s about uh, subsidies, uh, food subsidies uh, and things of that kind. Could you say something about that? And then here's another question, which is the ultimate exam question, uh, Arnie. It is very succinct. Is imperialism the highest stage of capitalism or is capitalism the highest stage of imperialism? Uh, as you and I will know, probably it's best to go on to the next question rather than answer that. But it's, it is a good question, um, but it's a difficult one. So um, if you could address both sure. of those in whichever order. Yeah, let me deal with them in the order they were posed. So the, the, the first one, the sort of Mike Davis argument about famines, uh, which I to some extent accept. So I think would it have been easier for parts of the colonized uh, world, and I'm particularly thinking here uh, about the Indian subcontinent, but also further along, to prevent the kind of large-scale, if you like, world-class famines that you saw a lot of in the late 19th century and some at the beginning of the 20th century, I think the answer to that is yes. I think part of the reason why these happened, if you are, if I'm pushed towards generalizing, is that the forms of agriculture that many areas in the colonies depended on was increasingly not turned towards the kind of additional production of foodstuff that was intended to be sold or transmitted locally. So what that meant is not that these famines were deliberately set off by imperial powers in order to punish or discipline the population, but that when they start to happen for other reasons, mainly environmental and um, there was much less uh, opportunity to actually handle them and a complete unwillingness to provide the kind of relief from the center or elsewhere within the empire that would be necessary in order to uh, alleviate, even short-term alleviate, these kinds of disasters. Uh, there is an orientalist aspect to this, which I think is really important in the sense, maybe particularly for India, but for parts of Africa as well, that famines had always existed there. And there's nothing that the Europeans could do in, in order to help out with that. Indeed, it wasn't European responsibility to help out with it. Which I think when you take an imperial control of an area is a pretty big assumption. Also, when it turns out as in this case to be entirely incorrect. Now, with regard to stages of, of imperialism, though I touched upon this when I was uh, discussing Lenin a little bit earlier on. Um, it depends, of course, very much on the definition of imperialism. But if the idea is that the reason behind 
the excessive uh, turn towards imperial acquisition, new forms of acquisitions, in the late 19th century, uh, was driven by the need for European export capital to have somewhere to go, then I think that's almost certainly untrue. So in that sense, imperialism didn't lead necessarily uh, in, in that form, which is what Lenin was preoccupied with, out of uh, advanced uh, capitalism. But of course, as I, as I showed in the lecture, there are intimate connections between the two, between empire and capital, uh, that sustained each other over a very long period of time. It's just that we have to be very careful when we create these kinds of overall explanations for what happens, um, you know, insisting to others that we have found the real reason um, why something is happening in history. Usually my answer then is that things are a little bit more complicated than that. And in those complications uh, lies the understanding. Sometimes even our ability, as we can see today, I think, in doing something about some of these more difficult questions. So the answer to a difficult question is to say, oh, we can never find out about that. It is to try to figure out how things actually worked and then respond in the same way uh, with regard to what you want to do to change it. Uh, I think that's particularly true for our own setting today when it comes to economic development. It's clear to me, mentioning the Washington Consensus, that some of the ideas connected to the Washington Consensus um, were very much uh, coming out of the same kind of thinking that prevented effective assistance against hunger disasters in the late 19th century, which is basically one size fits all. And you don't need to take into consideration who benefits from this, because in the longer run, everyone is moving in the same direction, uh, which have turned out historically to be a very faulty and even dangerous kind of thinking. Mm. I, take, I think people like Sir Evelyn Baring, I think, uh, back in the late 1880s, running the Egyptian economy, would have been a very good IMF person from the 1980s, probably. Um, religion. Uh, uh, the question is, how, how important is religion, particularly Protestant uh, missionaries, etc., in this era? And, and can I just go back to your very first point, which was about the civilizing mission uh, and your suggestion that in the 19th century you do have you avoided the word humanitarianism but you do have humanitarian organizations anti-slavery movements etc etc anti-piracy uh, attempts to keep the seas open etc etc but hasn't every empire in history had a civilizing mission and hasn't religion been there somewhere uh, in the background uh, sometimes in the foreground in the case of some but definitely a factor it differs um I think there have been quite a few empires that have not been primarily religious, uh, or at least in terms of what drove them and what inspired them. Um, I think to some extent uh, that could even be said for the British Empire. I mean, it certainly turned much more religious towards the later part of its existence, particularly in the late 19th century, than it had earlier. It almost became much more preoccupied with differences towards the end of its existence, as, as uh, uh, Fred Cooper, among others, have, have pointed out repeatedly. So I don't think it would be true to say that religion necessarily was among the driving concepts of, of all empires um, in their initial phase or whatever phase really they were in. Civilization is a different, different issue. So I think there have been standards of civilization that uh, the imperial centers have tried to set as a justification for their own right to rule others. And that's pretty common. Um, in a class I teach here at Yale, I've, I've um, 
looked at uh, 12 different instances of global power shifts. And one of the first ones we deal with is um, the Han Empire's expansion into what is now southern China in around 200 BC. Uh, and it's very interesting to see that with the Wu Emperor and others who were in charge of this expansion, ideas of civilization, who is at a higher civilizational level, were quite important when it came to decide what they were going to do with the with the, the uh, conquest of the South after they had won. It's always very interesting to discuss that particular case with a bunch of uh, American officers uh, who served in Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. The problems always come afterwards, after you won the military victory, what do you mm-hmm. do then? And the war emperor was pretty good at handling this. Um, thinking about different ways in which it could be handled and ended up with a standards of civilization argument, uh, which basically said, we did this because we could, and now we are going to impose our civilization and our culture on, on these people. And over a very long period of time, it, it, it actually worked. The problem is that in the empires that we've been discussing for this series, it's really, really hard to imagine anyone being willing to use the kind of instruments of power in ways that would impose uh, a broad sense of civilization or a cultural change in the way that the uh, Wu Emperor did back in the in the Han uh, dynasty. So I think that's where we are left with with regard to this. The, there is the sort of racial, civilizational ideas about superiority, but there are also uh, humanitarian instincts that compete, and to some extent, and this is where it gets really Tricky, right? Uh, to some extent, work together with these instincts of domination and control. We are better because we are more humanitarian. The Sati example that I mentioned earlier on. Um, of course, in reality, uh, some of these arguments then end up uh, in, in, in ways that are completely impossible to understand, uh, almost farcical in many ways that one has to kill whole groups of people because they are civilizationally uh, unsuited for the kind of position that they have. And they practice things that we in our humanitarianism are not willing to accept. I think you sometimes find that, though not in such an extreme form, in some of the debates about international affairs today, you certainly found a lot of them in, in the late 19th century. So these dilemmas that empire brings us closer to, I think, than anything else that we can study, are well worth thinking about in a contemporary context. What are we willing to do? How far should we be allowed to go, uh, whoever we are, whether we are in Beijing or Washington or London, in order to impose the kind of standard of civilization that we think uh, is the correct one, not just for ourselves, but for the whole world? Mm. Um, we've only got about four minutes left, Arnie. I'm going to ask you a very controversial question. It's the title of a book, quite well-received and well-known book, that came out a couple of years ago about the British in India called Inglorious Empire, uh, by a well-known and somewhat notorious Indian politician, perhaps, but in which he, he came up with some extraordinary statistics, such as I think India had 25% of global GDP in 1700 and down to about 3% in 1947, at independence, and he was basically saying it was just an extraordinary grand scheme of exploitation, not necessarily even conscious exploitation by everybody, but it was, that that's how the system worked. Was there anything glorious about uh, empire of the, in the period you've been talking? 
not about the general historical concept going back three or four thousand years. Yeah, I wouldn't use the term glorious. Glory is a very slippery term. No, inglorious. Uh, it was anything that was not inglorious. Glorious or inglorious. I mean, whatever way you define it, these are these are tricky terms to use because they're used to entirely denigrate or entirely celebrate something that is very complex phenomenon. So I think in overall terms, as I explained in the first lecture, uh, imperialism happens because it's in someone's interest to actually carry it out. It's really carried out, uh, or it's never carried out for purely humanitarian reasons, but really carried out uh, in situations where the civilizational argument even is the, is the top one. Uh, very often, um, like in the case of, of India or, or, or Africa or the Middle East from Europe, uh, it is about uh, exploitation to begin with. It is not so much about glory. Now, there is a, an ability to show military prowess, of course, which is a central part of this, as it is about getting rich fast, about exploiting someone else's wealth for your purposes. But having said that, it's also quite clear that as empires settle, these clear definitions of us and them become much more difficult to carry out. And India, again, is, I think, a very good example of this. So the British Empire in India stayed uh, exploitative throughout its existence. But it, that is not the full story of the British presence in, in India uh, in terms of other aspects of imperial activities, some of which I've wanted to in this lecture that had to do with uh, education or sanitation or, or health in a, in, a, in a broader sense. But I also think we should be careful with saying that that is in a way something that, uh, if not explains or justifies empire, then certainly should change our overall view of it. And the key point here, I think, is that this is what governments do, right? If you take an over a country or a territory, you are supposed, at least to some extent, to act on behalf of its inhabitants, even if these inhabitants are entirely disenfranchised, as was the case in British India, uh, or, or, or in, in, in parts of Africa. You're supposed to act on their behalf. So, you know, this, uh, the, 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 what did the Romans ever do for us uh, question, uh, which I always like to play in its Monty Python form for my, for my students, um, is in a, in, in a way the wrong way of asking the question, because this is what governments are supposed to do. And if they stop doing that entirely, uh, they also stopped government in a certain way, right? So I think it's important to bear both of those two things in mind. And, it, and since empire and especially imperialism have been for good reasons such tremendously contentious issues, not just in politics, contemporary politics, but also in terms of historical investigation or in international relations, it's very hard to deal with the concept of empire in those kinds of terms. So actually looking at more at both what empire did and what it meant, that looking at whether it's good or, or bad. But anyway, this was part of the reason why I got inspired to, to try to do something along those lines for these lectures. Mm. That's what I'm going to follow up on in the fourth lecture as well, I hope. That's uh, excellent. And the fourth lecture, just to remind everyone, is on the 8th of, of June. Arnie, thank you so much for your, your lectures today uh, and for the series in general. Uh, and um, and thank you to the audience and uh, my apologies uh, to those who asked questions. I wasn't able, unfortunately, to, to accept them, but hope to see many of you again in June.
Bye for now. Thank you.